Hey everybody, this is Bob. Last January, I started leading the Tuesday night Bible study through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We ended in the late spring at a good stopping point, the beginning of chapter 17, the new section about the destruction of Babylon. Now, I intend for our Bible study to finish Revelation this fall, but I wanted to give a summary of what we've done so far to refresh our participants' memories and to enable new people to join us if they like. So I'm putting together two podcasts. The first is an introduction to the book of Revelation, what is it, how to read it, etc. The second will be working through chapters 1 through 16, hitting the high points, just to kind of catch everyone up. Throughout the podcast, I'll read a few verses and cite many, so you might want to first read chapters 1 through 16 or the whole book and or stop the podcast and read what I'm referencing as we go. So again, today is the broader introduction, and it starts in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Let's get something basic out of the way. As the first verse says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not revelations. Some of you need to stop calling revelation, revelations. You're making me look bad as a pastor. We must sound and talk like superior Christians. Well, no, not really. I'm joking about that. Uh, It's kind of a nerdy, nitpicky thing, but also kind of gets to the heart of what is challenging and exciting about the whole book of Revelation. See, we're tempted to call it Revelations because as we read through all of these amazing scenes and various characters and abrupt changes— we can't help but begin to think these are multiple, somewhat unrelated revealings, as if these are a bunch of confusing visions that no one can make heads or tails of. These are wacky, wild revelations of Jesus Christ, and good luck to anyone who tries to really sort them out. No, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a unified whole, an unveiling, an uncovering of the deeper truth and spiritual reality of what is happening and will be happening. It is the story of the Lamb of God's victory being worked out in cosmic history with a particular view to the church and her opponents. As one commentator has put it, the point of revelation isn't only that Jesus wins, it's also that the church wins. The Lamb is victorious and safely guides and delivers his faithful bride through tribulation to be united to him and his Father. That's the revelation. It is a book and message of comfort, but it also is a call for the church to do something, which, as usual, is to meet God where he himself is working. Verse 3 in chapter 1 says it plainly, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the church is to read, hear, and keep, that is, do, what is written in Revelation. Specifically, seven churches in Western Asia Minor are separately addressed by Jesus in chapters 2 and 3. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Ephesus was the primary church, and the order of the churches listed is a geographically clockwise circuit starting at Ephesus. So this is literally a circular pastoral letter. We assume seven churches were chosen because of the symbolic significance of the number seven, which we will discuss in a moment. 
There were other churches in the region that also could have been addressed, but the fact that specifically seven were addressed suggests that these messages are for all churches, present and future. For now, though, it's important to grasp that because these seven churches were addressed first at the beginning of Revelation, using imagery and ideas to come up later in Revelation, whatever else is in the book of Revelation, it had to have been useful and relevant to first-century Christians in Asia Minor. So that helps us narrow down the near-infinite choices of interpretation in each chapter. Revelation was first meant to be useful and applicable to these seven churches and the rest of Christians everywhere at that time. It will not be useful to us if we remove Revelation from this foundational interpretive grid. Now, let me tell you some good news. The command here in verse 3 is not to figure out or decode Revelation. Revelation is not a puzzle book to be figured out. In fact, the primary commands from Revelation to the church in all ages are consistent and repeated throughout the book and are found all over both Old and New Testaments. There are basically two commands. One, repent, particularly of the ways Christians have compromised with the world. And two, faithfully witness to Jesus Christ, even in the face of persecution and martyrdom. Faithfully repent and faithfully witness. That's it. Revelation then answers the why question. Why faithfully repent and witness? Because the Lamb is victorious, despite appearances to the contrary. Revelation shows us what is really happening and who really wins. I said Revelation is not a puzzle book. Instead, it's a picture book. Jesus tells the Apostle John to write down everything he sees Revelation fits into the broader genre of apocalyptic literature, which I'm not going to describe other than to say, compared to every other work in its genre, Revelation does more scene describing and character development while using much, much less dialogue. It is a picture book, a graphic novel, meant to shock and awe. One commentator has likened Revelation to music videos. Music videos can be pretty weird and inaccessible unless you are Gen X. Then you spent hours for years watching MTV when they actually showed videos. Music videos became a medium people like me were comfortable with. You didn't always understand every last detail, but you got the general gist and could navigate the genre. So the question most people ask is, how literally should we read Revelation? And the answer is, not very literally. If what you mean by that is journalistic narrative. Revelation is a book that deals in metaphors. It isn't describing things as they actually look, it's describing things as they actually are. In that sense, John is seeing the metaphors. In chapter 5, verse 6, we for the first time read about the Lamb of God. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, the Lamb is Jesus. And Jesus has already shown up in chapter 1 as a blazing son of man. We know Jesus has a resurrected body. He is a glorified human. Jesus is not a four-footed domesticated animal with blood oozing out of his neck with seven horns and seven eyes. That sounds grotesque. John tells us the eyes represent the sevenfold perfect Holy Spirit who knows and fills all things. And we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that horns represent strength and power. 
the image of the lamb is a metaphor revealing the truth of who Jesus is. Revelation is filled with images given to John that are metaphors for the truth, and these images are not terribly complicated. They are mostly stock imagery from the Old Testament. Lambs and horns and dragons and stars falling and water turning to blood, lampstands, etc., etc., all find their meaning in the Old Testament. It is astonishing how rooted in the Old Testament Revelation is. For instance, chapter 1 contains at least 19 discrete references to the Old Testament, some of them repeated. And one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that God is constantly using metaphor to communicate truth to us. Take one of the best-known passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, green pastures, still waters, the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. All metaphor. We naturally get this. Metaphor is one of the primary ways we communicate. So all these images are bundled together in Revelation. They're quickly piled on top of each other, and we get confused. But almost every single one of them has Old Testament roots. And by slowing down and taking time to locate the Old Testament antecedent, we get a much fuller, richer understanding of Revelation. Another example, Revelation 8.8 says this about the second trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Now, some modern interpreters want to say that this must be talking about a nuclear explosion. An H-bomb can look like a burning mountain. We've, we've seen those films of, in the 50s and 60s of the, of the tests in the Pacific Ocean. But would Revelation speak about weapons not invented for 2,000 years? This is meant to be a helpful and pastoral communication to Christians in Western Asia Minor in the first century. Might it not instead be referring to the burning mountain of Babylon referenced in Jer Jeremiah 51? And where does water become blood? In the plagues against Egypt. Images of judgment against the two great empires hostile to God's people in the Old Testament. Doesn't that make more sense than an H-bomb? And judgment is divided into thirds in the prophet Ezekiel. In general, with the symbols and imagery of Revelation, we don't look ahead and try to guess what country or what weapon or what catastrophe is involved. Instead, we look back into the Old Testament to understand what is being communicated. Additionally, there are a few notable cases where symbols and images are taken from first century Greco-Roman culture. So again, Revelation is not journalistic reporting, some kind of factual linear narrative. We see that partly through the structure of the main portion of the book. Let's, let's briefly talk about outline. Chapter 1 starts with John's vision of Jesus. Then chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Western Asia Minor. Chapter 4 then shifts to a vision of the heavenly throne room. Then chapter 5, the lamb appears in the throne room and he takes a scroll. The scroll is the rest of history. And chapter 6, the seals of the scroll start being removed one by one. And this is where Revelation seems to get crazier. Chapter 6, really up to the epilogue in chapter 22, is a series of related visions of judgment that end with the heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth and the nations streaming into it. This is the section, 6 through 21, where we have in order the seals, the trumpets, the dragon and the beast, the mark of the beast, the bowls, the destruction of Babylon, the right 
White Rider, Armageddon, the Millennium. But we shouldn't read chapters 6 through 21 as linear history because there is a clear structure and repetition to these chapters. There are roughly seven major cycles, all of which end in what appears to be the final victory of God over the forces of evil. And in most of the seven major cycles, there is a secondary cycle of seven within, particularly within the seals, trumpets, and bowls, all of which are divided into seven. And the seals, trumpets, and bowls each follow a similar pattern of four, two, one. This kind of composition does not suggest chronological linearity. We won't get into the specifics, but the point of all this is that these seem to be seven different scenes of the victory of God from different angles, um, with different lines of emphasis. Some of these are very wide angle, perhaps taking in the whole scope of human history, like the seals perhaps in chapter 6. Some are medium angle, like the history of the dragon and the beast making war on the woman and her children in chapters 12 and 14. Some are very narrow angle, like the scene of the white horse and the white throne in chapters 19 and 20. So in my opinion, leaning heavily on various scholars, Revelation 6 through 21 is a brilliant jewel revealing God's victory over evil, and we are given various cut sides of the jewel to look through, and it's beautiful. So we shouldn't read Revelation as a literal, linear reporting of, spe- of specifically what will happen. There are a number of schools of thought on how to read Revelation. One school is called Preterist, which says nearly everything in Revelation has already happened besides the final battle and judgment. Another reading, called Historicist, says that Revelation is talking about different phases of church history particularly. Neither of these views are very popular these days. The modern dispensationalist reading, made popular in the Left Behind series, says that everything after Revelation 4 happens after the rapture where the church is taken up to heaven, and occurs in a a three-and-a-half-year time span. There are multiple problems with this view. It's simply not a good reading. There is an idealist school that says these are repeated patterns throughout history, lots of forms of the beast, lots of judgments, lots of persecutions, etc. And then there's a more traditional futurist reading that says much of this is still yet to come. A mix of idealist and futurist seems to make the most sense. We know for sure Jesus has not returned, so there are some future events depicted. On the other hand, Rome has fallen, and the destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18 is almost certainly a description of Rome. And yet, absolutist empires like Rome, that make war on the church, continue to come and go. The history of the dragon and the woman and her children in chapters 12 and 14 has already partially taken place, since there it discusses Jesus ascending to heaven. But this comes after the cycles of seals and trumpets, both ending in what seemed to be final victory. So between these cycles, we are moving forward and backward in time. They are each discrete narratives themselves. And the overlapping and similar patterns of judgment and resistance to God, put into traditional Old Testament terms and symbols, suggest that there is something cyclical and repetitive about this. So again, I look at this, along with many others, from a combination of idealist and futurist perspectives. Revelation is describing an age-old battle between God and the dragon, which we all still face as God's people. We are not immune from the struggle or the risks of the battle, which is one of the key points to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. The beast is making war on us now. Yet, there likely will be an intensification of that trial, with even greater expressions of God's judgment on the world still to come. 
We don't know when Jesus is returning, and Revelation gives us no solid clues about that. We know he hasn't come yet, but that he will come in victory. So the application remains the same. Watch and pray, repent and witness. Revelation provides us the ultimate ending of endings. I love to say how easy it is to start a good story and how nearly impossible it is to end one well. The TV series Lost is a great example. Revelation is the ultimate ending because it gives you seven visions of the end and then the final consummation with the heavenly Jerusalem coming to earth. I think of it as a great fireworks display. It's July 4th, it's evening, you're laying on the grass, you're watching these fireworks, and there's this climax, right? Lots of great explosions going off, like, and you're like, ah, this is the end. It's great, right? And things go quiet, and then all of a sudden, a few more fireworks go off, and there's more. It's not the end. The show is continuing, and then you come to another climax. Ah, here's the end. It's even better than before. Amazing. And yet things get quiet, and then more fireworks start coming. Wow, it's still not over. Now do that seven times, each climax getting better and better and better. Then to cap it all, there's this incredible vision of the new Jerusalem. The tree of life is back. The nations stream into the city. Every tear from our eyes is wiped away. It's breathtaking. Almost every major and minor strand from the Old Testament is tied up. It is the ending of all endings. And to me, Revelation's composition, structure, connection to the rest of the Old and New Testaments, as well as its incredibly satisfying resolution, prove that this is truly God's Word. No human or group of humans could conclude a massive 1,500-year work of ancient literature so successfully. Now, part of the question of how to read Revelation deals with its date and composition. The date most accepted by evangelical scholars is sometime in the 90s, at the end of the first century, in the Apostle John's old age. The letters to the seven churches seem to speak into a late first century setting. But there was no empire-wide persecution of Christians near that time. There is no date that makes perfect sense, but the end of the first century seems most likely and fitting, since that would make Revelation the last canonical book written. There are interesting grammatical and thematic links between the Gospel of John and Revelation. One scholar put it like this, The Gospel of John is about the bridegroom, Jesus. Revelation is about the bride, the church. And of course, Revelation ends with the wedding supper of the Lamb, the bride coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, gorgeously appointed and radiant. Along with various connections with the Gospel of John, tradition tells us that the Apostle John was the one who received the Revelation. The question of authorship is one we can be flexible about, as it doesn't affect Revelation's authority or canonicity. In terms of an introduction to the book, we need to highlight the importance of numbers. Nearly every number is symbolic in Revelation, and the few that aren't are intentionally so. Seven stands out as the ultimate number. There are seven spirits of God, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. But there are also seven beatitudes scattered throughout the book. The title Christ shows up seven times, the name Jesus 14 times, the designation Lamb, 28 times. The title Lord God Almighty occurs seven times, as well as Alpha and Omega and its equivalents. Seven is the number of completion, fullness. So, 
seven letters to seven churches means this is a communication to the whole church. The seven spirits of God is the full Holy Spirit, the total spirit of God. Four is the number of creation. There are four creatures around the throne. There are four corners of the earth. All of humanity is designated in in order by four categories, nation, tribe, people, language. Creation is divided up into four categories usually, earth, sky, salt water, fresh water. You see this particularly in the trumpets and the bowl cycle. Twelve is the number of God's people. There are 24 elders around the throne, 12 foundations and 12 gates of the New Jerusalem. Square 12 and times it by 1,000 and you get a massive multitude of the elect, 144,000. In the account of New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22, the number 12 is referenced 12 times, and the words God and Lamb are each used seven times. What's really interesting is combining four and seven, the number of creation with the number of completion. The seven spirits of God are referenced in total four times, suggesting the fullness of divine power sent out into the whole earth or all of creation. The title Lamb is used 28 times, seven times four, suggesting the Lamb is the perfect Savior of all creation. The fourfold phrase of all humanity, nation, tribe, people, language occurs seven times, suggesting all of humanity in its fullness. There are 28 items imported to Babylon from the merchants of the earth in chapter 18, four times seven, representing the completeness of the whole earth. Again, the the composition is fascinating, and we could go further into the various ways Revelation uses numbers. But the number most people have likely heard of is 666, 666, the mark of the beast in chapter 13. But there the text tells us this is really the number of the beast's name, saying it is the number of a man. Now, this is simple gematria, using letters to stand for numbers. And and we still do this with Roman numerals, particularly with Super Bowls. But back then, all numbers were letters. We get our numerical symbols from the Arabic system, which came to the West later. So, at least for Hebrew and Latin, every name had a number, right? Because the letters of a name added up to a particular number since each letter was equivalent to a number. For instance, we found graffiti in the ruins of Pompeii that say, the number of the girl I love is 540. So, when you write out the Greek spelling of Nero Caesar in Hebrew characters, it adds up to 666. Now, plenty of people's names add up to 666, but there are various similarities between Nero and the beast in Revelation, particularly in that Nero was the first emperor to make war on Christians, The Roman East, particularly Asia Minor, worshipped him as a god, and there was a rumor that he didn't really die, but was coming back to conquer Rome. Also, there are a few variant copies of Revelation that say the number is 616. Interestingly, if you transliterate the Latin form of Nero Caesar into Hebrew, you get 616. Oh, and the Greek word for beast transliterated into Hebrew, also adds up to 666. So beyond that, the number 666 has other characteristics that would have interested math people back then. We're not going to get into right now. Anyway, so much for numbers. Finally, for this part, for this podcast, it's valuable to note that Revelation is a book of worship. The worship scenes are amazing. Worship happens throughout the book. And Revelation informs our worship. 
you can't get through a church service without singing some scene or image from Revelation. You know you are reading Revelation rightly when it causes you to worship more frequently and more deeply. It is not intended to send us down rabbit trails of speculation. It is a book that tells us the truth about who we are, the world we live in, and where it's all going. And in doing so, it invites us to worship. To worship in the Spirit, both the Lamb and the one sitting on the throne. And worshiping in the Spirit is exactly where we find John in chapter 1, and where we'll begin our walk through Revelation next time. We'll see you then.